Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church Podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. I've eaten up some of my preaching time, so let me get right into this work. Uh, The last time we were in Acts, uh, we were challenged by my friend, Pastor Matt, to ask the question, who are my people? We were challenged to live differently, to remain curious. We were challenged to seek relationships across the common and various boundaries that human beings erect. Today, we get to peer into the beautiful community forming around life with Jesus by the power of the Spirit. If you want to follow along with sermon notes, they're going to be there at that QR code. You can also find the bulletin there if you want to know what's going on with the church this week. But uh, we get to peer into that community today. And, and it would make sense, wouldn't it, that the power of Jesus' life would begin pressing into the normal, into the daily, uh, into the routine, into the parts of life that weren't spectacular, but, but were in fact drawing God's people into a new rhythm of living. And what we have here is Luke describing what a biblical church looks like, not only in the first century, but what it should look like in every century from Jesus' ascension until his return. So if you want to read with me, look at verse 41 in chapter 2 of Acts. We'll start there. So those who accepted his, being Peter's message, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day, listen to this, every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord, and if you would say with me, thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the word and the power of your word, and we pray that your word would transform us now as we hear the call Yahweh, the voice of God that can only be heard in the gathering of God's people. I pray, Lord God, that no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, with, toward, or even away from Jesus, that we would experience the fullness of the presence of the living God, just as we did through worship in your word now, and that by some small measure or great measure, we will be changed. We ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Um, Have you ever considered, you ever considered who will be at your funeral and not looking at their watch? Now, I, I know our mortality is not something we approach readily, just as we discussed in our Ash Wednesday gathering. But underneath this question, Underneath this question of, of have you ever considered who will be at your funeral is, is a deeper appeal. And that appeal is you need to find your people. You and I can imagine the anguish of someone who has passed away without deep and meaningful relationships. 
You can picture the apathy of people looking at their watches. And you, you know what precisely that is like. But, but most powerful, you can see the expression on their faces. They're ready to go. They're tapping their toes. They're looking at the program, wondering when we're going to get to the benediction. And that scene is heart-wrenching, isn't it? And it should challenge us. It should challenge you. It should challenge me to define the quality of our best relationships. You see, the hope one day is that there will be at least a few people who are not just powering through the moment out of obligation, but who want to be there to celebrate your life. But that requires forming deep and lasting relationships. And forming deep and lasting and meaningful relationships, guess what? It takes time. It cannot happen overnight. And listen, it will not happen if we allow the busyness we've adopted and the isolation that comes from it to win the day. Deep relationships only form when our lives are unhurried and communally grounded. And it is the desire of your heart. I know it. It's the desire of my heart. You want to be in a life-giving community. You want deep, lasting relationships. You want to find your people for the years ahead and for the moment when life ends on this side. But there's a problem to getting what we want, isn't there? The pace of our lives have led to our isolation, which in turn leads to crippling loneliness. In fact, Cigna Health Group cited this statistic. Researchers realized that Americans were lonelier than ever before, even before the pandemic hit, leading them to conclude that we have an epidemic of loneliness. 58% of Americans reported feeling lonely consistently. A few years ago, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy wrote about loneliness in his book, Together, where he says that loneliness, listen, loneliness is on the scale of the opioid epidemic or obesity. Harvard Magazine reports that the heightened risk of mortality from loneliness equals that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic. And why is this important? Because our host culture tells you to grind or get left behind. That's the message. And that leaves us with little time or energy or desire for forming deep relationships or experiencing a life-giving community. And because of this pace, because of the pressure, because of lack of connection, we often feel overwhelmed because we're so very hurried. In fact, Dallas Willard wrote this. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Psychologist Carl Jung wrote this, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. And this devil is robbing us, robbing us of an abundant life and a fulfilling rhythm of life in community. And nobody, I really believe this, nobody should be living so close to the edge of their margin that they don't have time or energy or desire for community and the formation of deep life-giving relationships. And that's not an indictment. I understand. I understand that feeling of being overwhelmed. I, I understand that feeling like your life is moving so fast that it feels like you're on a runaway train. I get it. 
And there's been times in my life where I told myself, I'm far too busy to actually invest in community. I'll just be as present of a pastor as I can be. What a cop-out. What a cop-out. So yeah, I get it. And yet the data has shown us that the very thing that gets lost in the pace we have accepted as normal, a life-giving community, is what I need most to help me slow the train and genuinely live free of loneliness and overwhelm. In fact, Sophia Colo, who's an MPH, and, and she wrote this for an article in Time and a couple of other publications. She said, we have seen tons of research and resources, rather, for decreasing loneliness. But the first step toward culture change is a shift in mindset and on a personal level. Listen to this. It means understanding our critical need for community. This is not the Bible. This is a lady trying to help humans be humans. Understand our critical need for community and not waiting until another pandemic for us to realize that loneliness has always been a problem. A few years ago, I went to Montana. Yes, Montana. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm secretly very country. Um, <laughs> Y'all don't know about this line dancing. I went to Oklahoma University. I went to Montana, and, and, and I went to a retreat center designed to create community. Uh, with and for pastors. And when I received the invite at first, I, I initially resisted for several reasons. But the primary reason that I rejected the invitation at first was that I said I was far too busy to go. I remember telling my friend Adam, the pastor who invited me, I can't afford to go right now. I just don't have the time. To which he rebutted, you can't afford not to go. Your life and your ministry depend on rest and relationships. It shook me enough for me to change my mind, commit to the trip. And I have not one day regretted it. It was a great time to deepen old relationships and forge new ones. I, I was discussing with the team this week whether I would tell you some details of what I did on that trip. And I already told the team, so I may as well tell you. Uh, I went fly fishing. All right, nothing spectacular about that. Uh, you throw it up and you throw it out, and I caught some, I caught some trout. But I also uh, had the opportunity to shoot some groundhogs with AK-47 from the back of a truck. It's... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was making that up. Uh, yeah, they had a uh, bass fishing. You might not know what this is. A bass fishing boat chair bolted to the back of a Dodge Ram, and I sat in the back on a swivel chair with an AK-47, and I went to work. Now, I don't kill indiscriminately, okay? Um, the, the, uh, the ranchers there, have they hire people to come out and do this. I was getting to do it for free. They, they hire people to come out and do this because the groundhogs dig holes, and then the cows step in the holes and break their legs, uh, and then they lose all value to the ranchers. So the ranchers are like, come smoke these groundhogs. And I was like, say less, right? So, so, uh, so that's how I spent my time while I was there, and it was fantastic. And in order to do that, in order to have that experience, I had to slow down to what one writer calls the speed of love to experience what I desperately wanted and needed, which was a life-giving community among other senior pastors. And so in addition to the few that I have in Atlanta, let me tell you, I found my people. I found them. 
And I know that when the Lord calls me home, if they don't go first, and it's more than likely that I will go first, they will celebrate my life and they will not be found focused on their watches and wondering when the service will end. And I want the same for you. I want the same for you. And statistically, you want it for yourself. You want it for yourself. So how do we get there? Well, of the many images we see of the church in the book of Acts, the one that resurfaces repeatedly, listen to how I say this, is a people formed by Jesus and for each other. Do you hear what I said? I need you to take your American image of Christianity, take it out, put it on the ground and shoot it. Okay? We do not get saved as individuals, live Christian life as individuals and die as individuals to go to individual heaven. We are saved to God and to a people. And we are formed by God for him and for each other. You know, the church's account in Acts proves that the church is a great place to find your people. And there is a way of life that rejects loneliness and slows to love as God's divine desire reverberates through his people and in their relationships. Now, as Luke prepares to paint this picture for his readers, he concludes with the effect of Peter's sermon. And I'm sharing this for a reason. You'll see it. He said that many people were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the church. 3,000. When the Holy Spirit shows up empowering through his word, miraculous and sometimes ridiculous growth is likely. And yet, it is not the church's explosive growth that Luke immediately draws our attention to, is it? No, it is the rhythm of life and relationships that form that Luke wants us to not overlook. And the first thing that Luke notes in the rhythm of their lives is that they made four commitments, four things to which they devoted themselves. And I'm inviting you to do the same today. Make these four commitments. And it starts in verse 42. The first commitment that they made was to the teaching of the apostles. Just as Jesus had instructed the apostles, they passed that instruction to the new Christians, which means that these new Christians and the apostles and all of the other disciples, they had to do what? They had to gather regularly. They actually had to go to church. Okay? I told, I've told you guys many times, there's a Hebrews passage that's like, don't forsake the gathering together of yourselves. And I'm like, am I encouraged or discouraged that like 30 years after Jesus died and rose, people were still choosing not to go to church on Sunday? I don't know. Human nature never changes. There's nothing new under the sun. But they made this commitment. They made this commitment to gather regularly, expecting to be instructed about Jesus, expecting to be instructed about his resurrection, expecting to be instructed about what it means to be a disciple and how to live out kingdom ethics and to be reminded of God's desire to invite all people, de-churched, unchurched, far and wide, to be united with Jesus and with each other. The second commitment they made to which they devoted themselves was to the fellowship, the koinonia. That's the Greek word there. And the basic understanding of that word is a close relationship that can only be found in spiritual family. It is not a word that can be used of general relationships. 
This is a definition of finding your people. The first church was committed to deep relationships. They did not treat the community as transactional or optional. For them, the primary source of their most life-giving relationships was their spiritual family. Someone called the church the colony of heaven. I love that term. And what we see in this is that the believers fulfilled the words Jesus gave his disciples just before the crucifixion. In John chapter 13, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You might recall that Jesus also called his disciples what? His friends. No greater love does one have than this to lay down one's life for his friends. That's what he called them. Along with the apostles' teaching and the koinonia, these early disciples made a third commitment. They committed to breaking bread, which is another way of saying communion. Communion is our opportunity to remember as a family the sacrifice of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. It is our opportunity to renew our covenant with God. And it was their regular reminder of why they were Jesus' followers in the first place and why they were a spiritual family and to what ends they were living and had committed their lives. Now, the final of these four commitments that they made that I believe we must make is a commitment to prayer. The community that prays together stays together, period. Over the years, we've had different emphases on prayer. We've had various praying seasons, but let us be sure today, this is a house of prayer. We believe in prayer here. And if you don't know when it happens, I'm glad you asked. We pray every Thursday morning unless otherwise noted. So that means you also have to pay attention to communication. We pray every Thursday morning. Every thir- and, and I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you sometime during this Lenten season. Show up on Thursday morning and experience the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer in the gathering of his people. We pray along with the prayer team every Sunday morning. And we have seasons of extended daily prayer for 21 days at the top of each year. There is little better to go deeper with God and others than to pray with them. And so Luke tells us this is what they gave their lives to. And by them giving their lives over to these crucial elements of practicing the way of Jesus and them walking in the realized promise of God's spirit filling them, It led to a general and continual sense of awe in the entire community. That's what verse 43 tells us. They continually saw many signs and wonders. So let me just say this as an aside. Miracles are something we should presently long for and not fear and pray for because they are happening. And most of the time I see miracles in other countries and not here. And I believe the primary reason is that we have too many things to be desperate for the power of God. So I pray God gives us a desperation to see things happen that cannot happen by man's hands. As Jesus' life and power of the Spirit press into the normal, hear it again, into the daily, into the routine, it drew Jesus' people into something new, into a miraculous, divine commonness. Luke, in fact, tells us in verse 44 that they had everything in common. 
And they were willing to sell possessions and goods and distribute the resources so that no one in the community lacked anything. Can you even imagine that level of selfless generosity? That's Philippians 4.17 at work. That's the idea that Paul is trying to get at. This generosity that is credited to our account as blessing such that we are blessed by blessing others. The space of this common life was where new orientation was intercepting life stories and life plans and life projects and life purposes. It was a new common created by the Spirit of God. And as I read that, the question I asked myself is, if it is true that the Spirit has poured out in power, if it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead, if it is true that God is forming and has formed a family for himself from all people, then how could the things they held dear not be drawn toward the common? Time and talent and treasure, the trinity of possessions we know, would automatically feel pulled into that holy vortex. In fact, Willie James Jenkins said it this way, the real question are not whether this holy communalism, this sacred sociality, could or would be operative, be practical in this ancient world or any world. But the question is, what must it have taken and what must it have been like to feel the powerful pull of the life of our Savior? And what energy would it take to resist the Holy Spirit to slow down this pull enough to withhold themselves or their possessions from divine desire. In other words, what is ultimately at stake here is not the giving up of possessions, it is the giving up of ourselves for and to one another. Giving up ourselves every day, one by one, as the Spirit gives direction and as the ministry of Jesus demands. And so the invitation we see in their behavior is this, for us to be a soul of blessing, to be a soul of blessing, to be one who lives as though anything, listen, anything that might be used to bring people into the sight and the sound of the incarnate life of Jesus, anything that you might have that might be used to draw people into life together, anything that God may have entrusted you with that can draw people into life itself and away from death. Anything that you have that can end the reign of poverty and end the reign of hunger and end the reign of despair, such things are subject to being given up to God by the people of God. You know, this is a... It's a biblical statement, not a political statement. What is far more dangerous than any political plan of shared wealth or fair distribution of goods and services, what's far more dangerous is a God who dares impose on his people divine love. Because such love, one commentator writes, will not play fair. In the moment that we think something is ours, God will demand that we sell it or give it away or offer more of it to meet the needs of those in need. 
and create bonds of shared life. In other words, what happened after the resurrection and the ascension and the falling of the Holy Spirit was a new social reality for those who believed. And within this new social reality, Luke tells us that this first community was marked by what? Consistent relational connection as well. Verse 46 tells us that every day, somebody say every day, every day, we're trying to get twice a week, every day they spent time together, they worshiped together every day, they ate meals together in each other's homes every day, they had a vibrant small group community. And from it, from this vibrant small group community, they formed deep and lasting relationships that undoubtedly combated any sense of loneliness. In fact, the late theologian John Stott said this, commenting on this passage, he wrote, they could not keep away from each other. Of course not. This this marvelous thing had happened. This joy of the Lord. And they wanted to thank him together. They wanted to pray together. And they wanted to ask him to spread it and extend it to others. Implied there is together. In other words, they prioritize life-giving relationships. And let me tell you something. If you will experience the abundant life that Jesus promised you, you must do the same. You must do the same. Prioritize long-term, long-term, life-giving relationships. And what does that require? This will seem tangential, but it's not a promise. What does that require? It requires that you stay in one place long enough to invest and be invested in. It requires that you are not a part of the spiritual version of love is blind. And going from church to church, pot to pot, hoping to make a connection. It requires that you commit. I know that's a scary word for some of us. Commitment. Say it again. Commitment. I know it's a scary, but it requires that you commit. Let me say this. Just so you don't think this is a pitch for, and I'm going to throw this in air quotes. P.L. and his church, because this ain't my church. This is the Lord's church and it's your church, all right? I heard my friend Joby Martin say this one time. He said that God doesn't give churches to pastors. He gives pastors to churches. This is your church. So lest you believe for one second that I'm just making a pitch for my church. No, what I'm making a pitch for is the life that God promised you and you walking in it. Now, who hasn't been through growth track yet? Shoot your hand up. Be honest. Now, come on now. Y'all lying now. Come on. The first thing you're going to hear me say in growth track step one, the first thing is I hope you can make this place home. But if not this one, let me help you find one. It's my joy to do so. You want to be shouted at while somebody tune up on a B3? I got you. 
You want a hyper-intellectual sermon with a leg up on a stool? I got you. You want to not know where the preacher's going until the very end when he says Jesus' name? I got you. There are a thousand great churches in this city that I will point you to. I want you to be a part of this one. Don't get me wrong. I want you here. But what I want more than that is for you to be a part of a place where you are willing to lock in so that you can actually be living the life that God has for you. In fact, Joseph Hellerman says this in his book, When the Church Was a Family. Great read, by the way. I'm going to do a series on it in the near future. He says, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. Could end there because the point is made that you're not even going to grow the way you're meant to grow if you are not in long-term life-giving relationships. You cannot grow in isolation. You can't. You can't. You grow among others. People who stay also grow. And people who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust. But we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. And so we have two options in front of us. We have the results of the rhythm of life that has been cast by the American church which says go to as many churches as you have to to get your needs met. Or we have the rhythm of life that has been presented by the early disciples here where they formed deep life-giving relationships and they created a community so attractive and so vibrant that God, listen to what it says in verse 47, God could add new people to their spiritual family every day. Reaching one more was not challenging because a lonely world will always seek life-giving relationships. And so what we see is that if we give ourselves to God and to each other, God's loving, empowering presence gives life to everyone and everything. And that sense of being overwhelmed, that sense of being lonely, it fades And so the invitation to you today is simple. Decide to give yourself to God and to each other. Commit to a long-term investment somewhere. Hopefully it's here. And wherever you commit, be early, be present, be expectant, prioritize the gathering of your spiritual family. And lastly, get in a small group. Heck, try two or three over the next couple of semesters until you find your people. Get in a small group. 
Sign up for it right now. I know it's a QR code on screen. I don't have to look. And I know all y'all are not in small groups. Get in a small group so that you can actually experience the abundant life that God has promised. Your heart and the data tell us that this is what you want. But you have to commit. You have to commit to living in such a way that you can find it. So let me say it one more time. Sign up for a small group. Y'all thought I was starting up the people's elbow, didn't you? It crossed my mind. Get in a small group. Sign up for a small group. And I promise you, you will experience the benefits of being rooted in a life-giving community. Here's your other option. I'd love to give you options. Here's your other option. You can continue skimming your life instead of living it. So which path will you choose? Which path will you choose? The world, family, is a lonely, lonely place. And people are either looking for their people or they have given up on ever finding them. Here's my prayer, that at an ever-increasing level, we will continue to become a people committed to deep life-giving relationships that will overflow into city-changing love and loneliness-eradicating community. Let's pray. Worship team, head on up. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that you would seal your word to our hearts and that we would be transformed by it that we would never be the same. Father God, I pray for a stirring, even for a restlessness among those who profess to believe in you, that until they lock in, nothing will feel settled. I pray for a restless soul, for all of us, until we rest in you and until we give ourselves to you and to each other so that we might experience the abundant life that God has for us. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.